Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. We last left off with the Bauhaus poised at an inflection point between its deep, expressionist foundations and the momentous imperatives of a beckoning machine aesthetic. Today, we edge out from the context of European modernism to begin an examination of how this same question of organism versus mechanism had been confronted by Frank Lloyd Wright nearly 20 years prior to the launching of the Bauhaus. Following 1919, the Weimar School embodied the tension between humanism and a mechanical system originally meant to serve it. This perennial tale of strain between the human and the technological remains with us today and reaches back to the mixed blessing of Sumerian god Enki distributing tools to the earliest cities, and the effort of reconciling and adapting the social to the mechanical that came in the wake of the Industrial Revolution in the early 20th century posed a challenge as unprecedented as the advancements of the age. To give but one example, standardization was becoming ever more pervasive as industrial products continued to gain ground in areas previously exclusive to the realm of craft. Our recent examination of the smooth white walls of the house on horn as opposed to the detailed machine work in the wood panels of the Sommerfeld house, testifies to this contrast in objectives and outcomes. While Gropius had attempted to hold his ideologically divergent faculty together on these points, the Bauhaus decisively resolved in favor of industrial ideals. As historian Rainer Banham wrote in the early 60s, Grofius's re-establishment as one of the leaders of modern design after about 1923 was as the head of a school devoted to machine-age architecture and the design of machine products employing a machine-age aesthetic. At the Bauhaus and elsewhere, with economic pressure as an impetus, humanity would be transformed. A new, ubiquitous productive model seemed to herald a transfiguration of religious proportions. Shortly before his death in 1931, Theo van Doesburg went so far as to claim that every machine is the spiritualization of an organism. The Dutch artist felt that handcraft was what reduced men to the level of machines and, like many others, he welcomed a future of reduced labor and increased comfort that would enable a life of the mind. At the same time, the process of mechanical production, factory work, and its output, standardized consumer goods, had humans at both ends of the production chain increasingly behaving as cogs in the very apparatus that was meant to serve them. 
This was a case of the practical breakdown of the dualistic worldview we reviewed in past episodes. The general idea was that, adhering to Cartesian method, where a system separate from one's self is designed and tested, aspects of production could be rationalized into conceptually detached systems. The more these systems could be driven by labor-saving devices, the more that humans could remove themselves from toiling in a production environment. But as it turned out, what impacted the world around splashed back onto the lives of individuals. Abstracting industry away from the consumer was possible, but had its limits and its consequences. As the mechanization of the process of production reached a point of saturation, separating the human from the machinic grew increasingly unfeasible. Dehumanizing factory work on the one hand and sterile factory goods on the other were the result. To paraphrase Alan Watts, identity, far from being a skin-encapsulated ego, was proving to behave much like a feedback loop between the self and its surrounding circumstances. Though industry had its detractors starting with the so-called satanic mills of the late 18th century, Gropius and Wright shared a common cause in that they wished to purge the machine of its damaging aspects and educate its use for higher ends. We will examine Gropius's related 1923 essay in due course. Today, we will begin our reading of Wright's earlier discussion of the subject. Though Frank Lloyd Wright himself requires no introduction, we would be remiss to leave one out entirely. He was born in 1867 to a mother who had dreamt while pregnant that she would give birth to the greatest architect that had ever lived. She surrounded the baby's crib with architectural images, and the man grew to believe in the truth of his great destiny, going a long way to actualize it. One hundred and fifty years after his birth, one must struggle to argue otherwise. His buildings transgressed stylistic boundaries and generational divides. With his career having been pronounced first dead, then resurrected several times over. His work did not, however, cease until he did, dying in 1959 at the age of 91. Wright apprenticed under Sullivan, to whose feeling for geometry he added a sense of the nature of materials, grounded on his background as an engineer. His early publications of plans and elevations made a monumental impression in Europe. But while Grotheus, like so many European modernists, was profoundly struck by Wright's use of forms, he remained less aware of the theory that had produced such admirable visual results. This would lead Wright to later remark that the countenance of his architecture had crossed the ocean, while its essence had not. 
though his own recalcitrance was at least partially accountable for it. We owe the preservation of Wright's statement on the machine to three documentary events, a book containing a lecture quoting an earlier lecture. Our source text is a 1953 publication of transcribed speeches entitled The Future of Architecture, among the several chapters of which is Machinery, Materials, and Men. The architect recorded this lecture, the first in a week-long series at Princeton in 1930. With typical dramatic flourish, he proclaimed that its original, a 1903 lecture on the art and craft of the machine, prepared for an event at the Muckraking Hull House Institute in Chicago, had been saved several years ago from the flames by a miracle. This was an allusion to the 1914 tragedy wherein a recently dismissed butler had murdered his wife, her children, and several others. The bodies had been set on fire and the Taliesin estate burned, taking much of Wright's archives with it in a crime the notoriety of which was architectural history's prefiguration of the Manson family's grim exploits in the universe of film. Wright had almost ended his career by marrying the spouse of one of his clients, and now she had been slain by a servant of his hiring. Would you want this man to design your bedroom? Decades later in Princeton, once his career had recovered, through his literally becoming big in Japan, he claimed that the first several pages of the then 27-year-old lecture he was about to read still bore the scorch marks of the flames. He also announced, almost playing at Cincinnatus, that having spoken this essay once again into the record, this one at Princeton should be its last reading for I shall never read it again. This appears to have been true. And though in the interval between 1903 and 1930, it was translated and published in more than seven languages, Wright's theory was never well or even clearly received in Europe. The Wrightian visions that made it across the Atlantic would remain uprooted from the soil they had grown from. Wright's remarks introducing his 1903 lecture begin with the assertion that the as-yet-unrealized American architecture would be born modern, as all great styles are, springing full-formed like Palace Athena from the culture. Subversively combining opposites, Wright speaks of a rational surrender to instinct that he defines as a rebellion. A Jeffersonian at heart, he held out hope that the westward-moving wave of culture across the North American continent could outrun European decadence to establish exceptional status among the nations of the world. 
he saw his part in this was to further the expression of this culture's native architecture, of which he claimed that the United States had not a bit by 1930. He lists the qualities and accomplishments of previous architectures, including African, East Asian, and Central American work. Mayan stone architecture had only recently been rediscovered by Westerners, and Wright urged students to grasp the simple force of the level grandeur of the primal Mayan sense of form and the Mayan enrichment of it. Yet, he encouraged his audience to refer to the past not to imitate, but for a specific sort of inspiration, seeking what the wise sought, rather than just following in their footsteps, in step with ideas that Kandinsky would articulate years later, Wright argued regarding the great achievements of ancient architecture that profundity of feeling the men of bronze could encourage. Their forms we should have to let alone. Imitation should be avoided, as all great architecture is true to its architect's immediate present. Adding specifics to the charge that Europe had misunderstood his ideas, Wright identified three areas that European modernism was failing to address the nature of materials, the third dimension, and integral ornament. He thought the nature of materials and awareness of the third dimension, a joint objective of the modern movement, had been subsumed by a relatively superficial awareness of surface and mass, and that this pairing was itself the byproduct of a machine process. The skill of the architect must be put into Wright's so-called trinity, and these were the objectives to be held in mind when using the machine. After 27 years of attempting to apply the concept set forth in his original lecture, he had paused to remark that these were the results that could and should be achieved. He went so far as to call his trinity the beating heart of the whole matter of architecture so far as art is concerned. Yet surveying the condition of the built environment in the United States some decades on, he said, This republic has already gone far with very little of any single one of these great saving qualities. Yet it goes further, faster, and safer, eats more, and eats more regularly, goes softer, safer, is more comfortable and egotistic in a more universal mediocrity than ever existed on earth before. The contrast of a higher quality of life against the backdrop of a Catholic mediocrity is exactly the kind of Faustian bargain that mechanical advancements offered. This is the point at which Wright starts to read the original The Art 
and craft of the machine, the title of which alone was provocative and polemic. Up to that time, especially for those steeped in the reformist arts and crafts tradition of Ruskin and Morris, such a title meant heresy. One of the objectives of the arts and crafts movement had been to preserve the occupations of artisans by elevating and promoting handcraft design objects in the marketplace. In his argument, Wright advanced an idea that would take many decades to become common currency, namely, that the machine is a tool in the artist's kit rather than something antithetical to art. At the outset, our heretic informs his audience that he has not come here tonight for a sociological prescription for the cure of evils peculiar to this machine age. Instead, he upsets expectations by situating the imagined enemy of the machine within a hierarchy of Puritan values that the audience would have found familiar and sympathized with. He presents himself as an artist, claiming that art is dependent on the values of social order, and that this social order is itself dependent on thrift. At the root of this hierarchy of art riding atop social order above thrift, Wright compellingly claimed that thrift was impossible without mastery of the machine. There is no thrift in any craft until its tools are mastered, nor will there be a worthy social order in America until the elements by which it works are mastered by American society nor can there be an art worth the man or the name until these elements are grasped and truthfully idealized in whatever we, as a people, try to accomplish. Not only does Wright go so far as to endorse the anathematized machine as an instrument of art, he claims that the machine is necessary both to art and to the social order. He raises a point which, then as now, was generally accepted as a truism, that architecture is a record of a culture and its values, that buildings are the physical manifestation of thoughts and beliefs. Then, he deftly exposes the cognitive dissonance that a dualistic view of culture presents by taking this assertion one step further. In this age of steel and steam, the tools with which civilization's true record will be written are scientific thoughts made operative in iron and bronze and steel and in the plastic processes which characterize this age, all of which we call machines. If architecture is to serve as a cultural record, and tools are thoughts physically manifest, the dualistic objective of using machines to close off aspects of the environment 
or of machine production is fundamentally and fatally flawed. Decades before the fact, Wright had pulled away the curtain from the high modernist's Wizard of Oz, Theo van Doesburg's poetic claim that every machine was the spiritualization of an organism was thereby, at best, a good-natured sales pitch for labor-saving devices, at worst, a destructive delusion. To enable or encourage the aspect blindness of substance dualism that allows the individual to manipulate his surroundings at will in the confidence that his identity would be perfected through it, was to invite suicide. The twentieth century, soaked through with this manner of bifurcated thinking, would, like a high-stakes gambler, expose the heights and depths of this outlook. We will further explore what remedies Frank Lloyd Wright proposed to relieve this condition next on Lapsus Lima.